we're going to jump into the text today. But before we do, I just feel the need to pray. And I know you do as well. Uh, and I realize we've prayed several times in the course of this service. But I just want to begin this message out by, by lifting up our country. Will you do that with me? Let's pray. God, uh, we want to pray for our nation this morning, our communities all across our nation. And God, as your people, we know that the world can never, ever have what it seeks apart from you. It can't have it. It can't have an end to racism or division. It can't have an end to lawlessness. It, these things, Lord, can really fully, in their fully realized state, they can be found in you and in the community of faith. And so God, would you help them find their way to the cross? Would you help every person in our country right now find their way to the cross of Jesus? And will, would you just enable us as your ambassadors and your emissaries, as your heralds to the world, to help them to find their way to the cross? And, and as this world grows increasingly hostile, not just toward the people of faith, but toward each other, God, help us to be beacons of the truth and a light in darkness in Jesus' name, amen. All right, welcome. We're gonna jump straight into our text today. We are gonna be looking at 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter two, verses one through five, and here's what Peter says. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good, if in fact you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, what he's going to do is he is turning, like Paul does in his uh, letters, he is turning sharply now from some of the high theology, some of the big picture theology that he has opened the book with, and now he's turning directly toward the application of it in the Christian life. But he has one more big theological idea to lay on us, and he does that in this chapters. Now, over the last week, we have learned that the sovereign, gracious, loving God of the universe. He has told us that we have been born again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus. That you, because of the resurrection, you and I have a sure salvation. And now he calls all men, all people, the people of God in the world to prepare their minds for action. And he tells us that we're living stones and we're a royal priesthood. Now, this is going to be interesting. We're going to unpack this, but let's start with the first thing that he tells us. He's going to tell us two things today. The first one is grow up. The second one is um, be built up. So let's talk about growing up in the faith today. Number one, grow up. There is a clear imperative in the text. So the text itself has a clear imperative. And he says right here in the middle, grow up. Have you ever had to say that to someone? Why don't you just grow up, right? Sometimes when you're especially when your kids start to become teenagers and they still sometimes act like little kids. Like once in a while, they'll just act like little kids. And you're like, hey, grow up. And so the tone of the passage, though, is encouraging. It, it is a pretty intense imperative that he gives the Christian. But he says, now it's time to mature. Now it's time for you to grow up in your salvation. And how do we grow in the faith? God 
we learn from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, has gifted the church with a great diversity of gifts, right? So there are a great diversity of leadership gifts and otherwise that God has put in the church. And those leaders and those those people who preach the gospel, those people who lead in the faith are supposed to help the saints or equip the saints to grow to maturity. Now, maturity is the, the measure of Christ. Whatever Jesus is, whatever he would say, whatever he would do, whatever he would think, whatever he, how he would respond, that's the measure of Christian maturity is to become more like Christ. And then he says in verse 14, Ephesians 4, 14, he says this, then, then we will no longer be children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking truth, the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, the head of the body of Christ. And so he says, this is the purpose for Christian growth so that you and I will not be swayed so that you and I will not be moved off of our foundation, so that you and I will not be blown around by every wind of teaching that blows into town or by every good-sounding idea that someone tells us, hey, this is true. You should totally believe this because, look, the mob believes this, right? So we want to be grounded in the faith. We want to grow up in the holy faith. So both Peter and Paul clearly tell us that it is God's will for us to grow up in the faith, to be matured in the faith, and to be grown up as we are transferred into, transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. So in order to grow up, he tells us, he gives us a short vice list, a short list of vices. And what are the vices? Well, he tells us this, rid yourself of worldly vices. We must rid our lives of worldly vices. What are vices? The word rid here means to cast off. It means like casting off a garment, just throwing it off. Rid yourself of these things. The first one he lists here is malice. Malice. What is that? Malice is malevolence. It's maliciousness. It literally means a mean-spirited or vicious disposition towards someone else. A mean-spirited or a vicious disposition toward someone else. So I want to talk, because it's in our culture right now, I want to talk about racism. Let's talk about racism. Uh, racism is malice. Racism is malicious. Racism is malevolent. It is mean-spirited, and it's vicious. And that is why God is not pleased with racism. What is it? I'll give you a definition. Racism is the belief in the superiority of one's own race and the inherent inferiority of anyone who does not share your skin color. That's what it is. It's the belief in the inherent superiority of one's own race and the inherent inferiority of anyone who doesn't share your skin color. Now, that is about as shallow of a worldview as you are ever going to find. That's quite literally a skin-deep, skin-thin worldview. Now, what I want to point out, though, is that uh, some of the things that have been troubling me as I've read them on Facebook or seen them on YouTube or seen them on the news, uh, they're just total nonsense. Uh, there is a difference between racism and ethnocentrism, and I'm going to tell you the difference. Racism is the pernicious belief. It is the pernicious advocacy of your race above all others. It is the belief that in your inherent supremacy, which, by the way, 
is idolatry because we are challenging then the supremacy of Christ alone. And according to Colossians chapter 1, only Christ reigns supreme, not your race, not your ethnicity, as it were. So, but racism is the belief in the superiority of one's own ethnicity, and it also can be the pernicious advocacy of one's own ethnicity above all others. You're, if, you're a racist if you believe by nothing more than the virtue of your skin color, you're better, and others are not as good. But ethnocentrism is different. Ethnocentrism is different because ethnocentrism is a perspective on the world from your world. That is to say, it's a perspective on other cultures according to the preconceptions originating in the standards and customs of one's own culture. So to give an example of this or an illustration of this, I was watching one of these weird um, shows where, you know how they go to other countries and they eat weird food? Have you ever watched those shows? I can't remember the name of it, but, but... One of these guys had traveled to a distant land, and it was a tribal culture, and they're sitting around what looked to be like a bonfire, but it wasn't a bonfire. It was a giant cauldron, and that cauldron was full of uh, some kind of slimy concoction. Don't know what it was, but there was a guy stirring it, and there was a bunch of tribesmen sitting around it, and he sat in with the tribesmen, and, and they all had cups. They all had cups, and he found out that it was that what was in that cauldron, what was in that basin that they were stirring, was uh, a mixture of some fermented fruit juices, uh, and also it was kind of their way of making beer. But one of the ways that they made the beer is that all the men sitting around the cauldron would spit in it, like just all the way around. They would just go around and just spit in it, and he's like, "What is this?" And then. After a while, they ladled up and gave everyone a cup and him too. Now, here's my question for you. (laughs) Pastor Daniel is literally throwing up in his mouth right now, okay? Here's my question for you. Would you drink that? Would you drink that? And if you wouldn't, why? Now, if you were the Apostle Paul, you would without flinching. Because his stated method of reaching people was to win as many as possible, by all means possible, so that he could win some, right? So he would do it and then just share the gospel with them. I I don't know that I would. I think that I would not do it. And here's why. Because I am making a judgment from the customs and standards and norms of my culture on their culture. And I don't think they're inferior to me inherently. I don't think that these people are inherently inferior to me. I just think they have a really nasty practice. And I don't want to engage in it. And that's ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is just seeing the world as you are. Seeing the world according to the cultural standards and norms and customs that are native to you. And that's not sinful. That is not racism. And so one of the things that's kind of annoyed me as I've uh, sort of watched people post, you know, these Facebook posts or something on YouTube apologizing for racism when they're not. Now, I don't know, maybe they are, but it doesn't sound like a lot of them are. It sounds like they're apologizing for something that they're not guilty of, because in reality, they're guilty of being an ethnocentrist, of being a person who just sees the world through their preferences and their predilections and their own cultural standards and norms, but they don't have a malevolent, malicious, pernicious hatred for people of another race. And I think when you offer an apology, this is just my advice, this is not the Lord, this is just I. But I think when you offer an apology for something you're actually not guilty of, it's hollow. It's empty. It's vacuous. And I don't think you should do that. 
But for sure, racism is malevolence. It is malicious. It is evil. And here's why. Because the racist denies three things that God decrees. Okay, the racist denies three things that God decrees. The first decree is that every man, no matter what their ethnicity, every man or woman, no matter what tribe, what language, which culture, whatever ethnicity they come from, whatever the color of their skin, all are created in the image of God. That's Genesis 9, 6. That's 1 Corinthians eleven fifty seven. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 49. People are made in the image of God. And the racist denies that. Look, if you ever talk to a real one, I mean somebody who really thinks that by virtue of nothing more than the color of their skin, they're superior to others. <laughs> I come from the South, so I, I, I have people in mind that I'm thinking of, literally faces in my mind that are, are appearing right now as I'm saying this. Listen, if you ever talk to a real one, they deny this decree. They deny what God says is true. They don't think that everyone is made precious in the image of of God as precious image bearers. They deny that. Secondly, they also deny, Paul tells us, that everyone, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what background, no matter where you come from, what your language is, what tribe you are, everyone, all, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's his standard. It's his holiness because his holiness, the way God is, is the standard for the way you and I ought to be. And so what Paul says in Romans 3.23 is everyone who's an image bearer, doesn't matter what color you are, everyone has fallen into sin. Everyone is a sinner. And thirdly, God loves and desires to save all people of every background, of every ethnicity. Here's Jesus commissioned the apostles in Matthew 28.19. Jesus has risen from the dead bodily. And Jesus gathers his apostles and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now I am authorizing you to go and make disciples of the nations. Now the word nations is the Greek word ethne. It's the Greek word ethne and it means ethnic groups. Back then a nation was really tied to its ethnicity. And so it means both things. It means make disciples of all nations, but really make disciples of all people groups, of all ethnicities across the face of the earth. You and I are commanded, we have a Jesus-given commission to make disciples of every ethnic group, of every ethnic group. And it's a good thing that those Jewish boys standing around Jesus didn't look at you and I as either white faces or black faces or red faces and look at us and go, eh, they're not Jewish. They almost did. If you read Acts chapter 15, they almost had that response, but they didn't. God forbid. They looked at the nations like us and they said, those people, those Celtic people, those Europeans, those Indians, those people out there, those Arabs, those people are precious children of God who have fallen in sin or in need of a savior. And God desires to save all men. Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. What? God so loved the world, he gave. God is generous, and he gave his son for the world. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says this, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, that is, all the people in the world. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and all godliness and holiness. And then he says this, this is good and pleases 
God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is God's heart? God's heart is to redeem every person who is redeemable. That's his heart. And racism denies these three truths, that people are made in the image of God, that they have fault, that everyone, everyone of every race has fallen into sin, and everyone is redeemable. And God desires for the gospel to go out into the nations and disciple the nations. So racism is malice. And Peter tells us, rid yourself of it. But so is lawlessness. Lawlessness is also malice. When you break someone's window in their shop and steal their stuff, God hates that too. God hates racism, yes, but he also hates lawless behavior, right? Both of those things are malice. Next, he mentions deceit. What is deceit? It means to take advantage of another through craftiness and treachery. To manipulate someone else, to con them, into thinking something is true so you can manipulate them and take from them. That's deceit, and that is inherently ungodly, right? And then hypocrisy. He mentions hypocrisy. What is that? Hypocrisy, it's just, we all know what it is. It's insincerity. Hypocrisy is just a person who puts on a pretense to pretend to be something they're not. It's the doctor who was caught a few years ago after he had treated thousands of patients and discovered he never went through medical school. He just had a fake diploma on his wall. That's hypocrisy. That is someone putting on a coat or putting on something external to pretend to be something that they're not. It's just a show. It's just, uh, it's dubious. And then envy. He mentions envy, which is jealous desire for what someone else has. Jealous desire for what someone else has. And we talked last week about coveting. Coveting is the desire for one tree more. Coveting is the desire when God says, you can't have that, you can't be that, you can't do that. And then we say, I'm going to have that, I want to be that, and I want to do that. <laughs> That's coveting. That's the essence of covetousness. But the essence of envy is a little different. Now, this is not a universal command. This is where God says, I have blessed this person with A, but I've, I've blessed you with B. And then you and I look at our neighbor and go, wait a second, they got A, and I only got B. I want more A, you know, it's just like, I want, I want what they have, right? And so this is not a thing that is off limits to all, it's just off limits to you, at least right now, because God hasn't blessed you with it. And so you may look at someone else's kids and the way they raise their kids or the way their kids are turning out and go, why are my kids acting like that? Or you may look at a person who has the same degree that you have, the same degree that you have, and is just moving up the ladder a little bit faster. And you may, and you may think, why don't I have that? That's envy. It's just this jealous desire for the blessing that someone else has. And guys in church growth experience this all the time. Uh, in the ministry, senior pastors are notorious for the sin of envy. And I remember a guy probably... I think a couple of years ago now, he was a local pastor and he, and he emailed me and, t and invited me out for lunch. And so I went to lunch with him and I sat down. He was a really weird guy. He's kind of just sort of one of those loud talkers, you know, like I'm not throwing a guy under the bus. I'm just saying it was, it was an interesting lunch meeting. But like right away, he started saying things like, man, I'm, I'm hearing a lot about Christ Community Church in the community. I go, good. He goes, man, there's a lot of buzz about you guys. 
Like, well, how's it going? I go, yeah, we're growing. It's going well. The Lord has blessed us, you know. And, he go, and then the conversation immediately turned to this. What are you doing? Like, what are the keys? I want to know what the, what the formula is. And I go, I have no idea. So then I just said, here's our mission. This is what God has called us to do, right? God has called us to gather worshipers in spirit and in truth, which is our number one priority. Our number two priority is to grow, grow those worshipers once they gather in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 3.18, right? So that's the second pillar of our mission, our vision, is to create that kind of church. And then we want to scatter those people back out in the community here to be disciple makers. And I just said, man, the most effective disciple making program you're ever going to have is if you make disciples who make disciples, and then he pressed me more. I want to know, what, well, what programs are you running? I go, it, I'm not a program guy. Look, this is our mission. And the answers were not satisfactory to him, but I sensed kind of this sort of envious thing that was coming across the table toward me. And I just wanted to say, hey, man, don't, don't worry about what God has blessed us with. You be faithful with what God has blessed you with. Because God is not going to hold you accountable for what he's given us. He's going to hold you accountable for what he's given you and whether or not you've been faithful. So you're never a failure if you're faithful to what God has given you and what he's called you to do. And so that's envy. That's desiring the blessing that someone else has. And then there's slander. Slander is an interesting word. It's actually a compound of two Greek words. The first word is kata, and the second word is lalia. And uh, so in Greek, these two words, the root is uh, lalia. And what that, word, that word comes from the word laleo, and that means to cackle like a parrot. That's what it literally means. It means to just speak thoughtlessly, to prattle on and on, uh, senselessly or thoughtlessly. And the word kata means concerning, means about, right? And so what you're doing is you're just chattering and slandering about someone else. It's concerning the character of another person. Whether, that, whether what you are talking about is innuendo or factual, you are slandering the character of that person. And so Peter says that's off limits. That's a vice. And we need to rid ourselves of these things. We need to rid ourselves of these vices. But then we also need to cultivate godly virtue. So we can't just uh, walk around trying to rid ourselves uh, like Stoics of vices. We need to also practice godly virtue. So how do we do this? He says, like newborn babies, crave the pure milk, right? Everybody who's had a baby, you know exactly what I'm talking about, man. Just a newborn baby who's just hungry, and they let you know. They're noisy until they get fed. And he says, like newborns, just crave the pure milk of what? The word. God's word. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians. He says this in chapter 3, starting with verse 11. He says, In Christ there is not a Greek, not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, which is Jew and everybody else, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, is all, and in all. That's, a be that's beautiful. He says, God is the author of human diversity. And when everyone is brought together in Christ, the bond of unity becomes the cross. It becomes God's love poured out in Christ. Then he says this, therefore, therefore, since God has brought us together in this unity, as God's chosen ones, that word is elect. That means he's elected you, you pagan, once pagan Gentile Colossians. 
So as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion. In other words, put it on like a garment. Display mercy for someone else's misfortune. And display, he says, kindness. What is kindness? The word kindness is literally translated the quality of being helpful, <laughs> right? So a kind person is a helpful person. It's the quality of being helpful. And then humility, we mentioned that, which is without pretense. And then gentleness. You know what gentleness means? It literally means soft-handedness. It means soft-handedness. It's the quality you need. It's, it's the expression that you need when you hold your little baby for the first time. When the nurse hands you your little baby for the first time, or any little baby, you need the strength to make sure you don't drop that child, and you need the gentleness to make sure you don't crush that child. And that's what gentleness is. Gentleness is the strength under control, right? That's what it is. It's a soft-handedness, handling people like they're newborns, the quality of not being impressed by someone's self-importance. And then he says patience. Here's another virtue. Patience, it means exactly what you think it is. It means to wait, but it also means a calmness under fire. It means the dignified bearing up under extreme duress or provocation. It is the dignified bearing up under extreme duress or provocation. Patience. And then 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If, if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive others. So there's two concepts here. One is putting up with others. Bearing up means to put up. It means to put up with the differences of other people, right? But it also means to forgive them. The word forgive means to release. It means to let them go. It means to release a debt or release them from a past obligation. And he says, just as the Lord has forgiven you and released you of that past obligation, so you release others. And then he says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The only thing that can bind us together in unity is the love of God poured out in Christ. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, let it rule your hearts and be thankful. Be ruled by peace. Be ruled by the reconciliation that God has for us in gratitude. So our supreme obligation and our supreme disposition toward others is to be forgiveness and to put up with them, to be humility and patience and kindness and all of these virtues. Why? Because God wants us to grow up in the faith. Because God wants us to grow up and both Peter and Paul tell us it's time to grow up. It's time to mature, put off vice, rid your life of vice and put on the virtue of God. But how's that possible? How do we do that? He says right here in verse 16, let the word of Christ, let the word of God in Christ, let it dwell in you richly uh, among you in all wisdom, uh, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does he say? Be discipled. You know, you are a disciple when you become saved, but now be conformed to the image of God. Get yourself in the word of Christ and let it dwell in you richly. That word dwell is the same word that is used in the New Testament for tabernacle. Let it tabernacle. Let it dwell in your life richly. 
and then be discipled, learn the content of the faith through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is the way they became educated in the first century because none of them could read, hardly any of them could read. They were mostly illiterate. The way you and I think of illiteracy. So the way that they would learn the content of the faith is to turn the stories and to turn the doctrines into psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and they would sing them to each other. That's awesome. Imagine if your next Bible study just broke out into song like 90% of the time. Wouldn't that be great? The key to ridding ourselves of vice and sinful patterns and cultivating godly virtues and godly patterns is allowing our, our minds to dwell on the Word of God, the rich teachings of Jesus the Messiah, and letting them dwell in us, grow up. He says also to these scattered exiles, be built up. The reason why you can grow up The reason why you can cast off vice and put on, clothe yourself in virtue, the reason why you can allow the word of Christ to richly dwell in you is because God is the one who is building you up. Be built up. Now, this is passive. Here in verses 4 through 5, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones after him, a spiritual house, are being built to a holy priesthood. There's two really great mixed metaphors. Are being built to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that word being built up is literally that. It means to be edified. It means to be built like a complex. So the language appears kind of arcane to you and I, kind of old-fashioned, because you and I don't live in a sacrificial culture. Like, we don't live in a culture where we see sacrifices literally of animals and temples. But this was a world where they understood exactly what this meant. Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, the rest of that Ephesians passage says this. Paul says, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up. There it is again, for building itself up. And love by the proper working of each individual part. So each individual part growing up, being built up into one unit, one whole body of Christ. Now, the first thing that uh, Peter says, going back to the Peter passage, is that we come to Christ. We come to Christ, the the living foundation stone. Uh, So this word come to is also a cultic term. It's a priestly term. It means to move toward a deity as an authorized priest. That's what it means. It means to move toward a deity, and the only people in the ancient world who were authorized to move toward a deity and to perform the rites before the deity was the priest. And then that's exactly what he calls us, a holy priesthood. We are being built up to a holy priesthood. So we come to the Lord. So in the Reformed tradition, which includes Lutherans, Calvins, Arminians, uh, us Molinists, and... um, some aberrations of all of those groups, all of us teach what is called the universal priesthood. We teach the universal priesthood. Why is that? The reason why that is, is not just because we were reacting to the uh, sort of the, uh, what was going on in the Catholic church at the time, but it's because the Bible teaches it. It's because the Bible teaches that every believer is being built up into this complex, each individual member contributing to the whole body as a priest in the house of God, a nation of priests and kings, right? So a holy priesthood, a royal nation. 
And so Christ, the living stone, who is rejected by men, but he is chosen and honored by God. Christ is God's elect. Christ is God's foreknown and predestined son. Christ is the high priest among the nation of priests. And Christ is the high king among a nation of co-heirs. Christ is the living foundation on whom the whole thing is built. And we are a company of priests born again into the one who is the high priest of God's family. That word priest just means mediator. It means one who stands between. It means one who goes between the deity, God, and the people. Hebrews 2.17 says this about Christ. For this reason, we, he, had, he had to be uh, made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for, their sin, for the sins of the, of the people. Hebrews 7, 7, 20, uh, 27 says this. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So Christ is not only the high priest who offers to God the perfected once and for all sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. He's also the lamb of God. And now you and I are to be offering, Peter says, to be offering God living sacrifices. What is he talking about when he says that you and I are to be offering God living sacrifices? Those living sacrifices are to be a spiritual analog, right? A spiritual application of the physical. The physical sacrifice was to set something apart, to set it apart, to devote it to God, and then to slay it, slaughter it, give it up to the service, or to God. And in a very real sense, that's what you and I are doing with our lives. You and I are offering our bodies, we're offering our life, we're offering our minds, our service to God in an act of spiritual devotion and consecration. So our lives are the offering of the spiritual sacrifices. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 12, 1 through 2. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present, there's that, there's that idea again, that cultic idea of presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. He says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So in other words, in light of the astonishing mercy of God on our behalf to give his son, to give his son as a living, holy sacrifice that is that is acceptable to God, then you and I ought to offer in thanksgiving, we ought to offer our bodily life in sac sacrificial service as a holy, pleasing act of genuine worship to God. And so how do we do this? Well, we offer our bodies to God when we refuse to offer them to sin. We offer our bodies to God when we refuse to offer them to the very vices that Peter mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 2. When we refuse to say, nope, this body belongs to God. This tongue, this mouth will not lie. It will not gossip. It will not slander. This tongue, this voice belongs to God. When we say these hands, these hands will not fight. They will not break bone. They will not break skin. These hands will be offered to God as, as instruments of service and worship to the one Lord, these eyes, what they see will not be offered to allow things into my soul that are ungodly. These eyes will be offered to the word. They will be offered to God. 
This is how we do it. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices when we offer them to God instead of sin. And we, offer, we also offer our minds to the Lord. We offer our minds to the Lord. Um, one of the things that I've realized about the daily commitment to offering my body in exercise uh, to the Lord, because I want to exercise not because I want to look good or anything like that, I want to exercise because my body belongs to Jesus, and I want it to be as healthy as I can make it. So I just want to be healthy. But what I've found, um, the problem with the body starts in the mind. Because every day when I get up and I see those wretched exercise bands laying there in my office, um, my mind thinks, let's go make a big sugary coffee. Like, that's what my mind thinks. Immediately, that's the first thing I think is, let's go make a big, sugary, frothy coffee. That's what I think. And then I do. <laughs> and, then, and then I tell myself, you know what I'm going to do? Is I'm just going to work out right after I check these emails. Right? And then I check out the emails, and then I don't. And then the next thing I know is, oh, man, I got to get to office. I got to get to that meeting. I'm going to work out when I come home for lunch, but then I don't. You see what the problem is? The problem with my body is that I haven't really decided in my mind that this is the first thing I'm going to do when I roll out of bed. This is the first thing I'm going to do when I get up. See, the problem is mental. It's my heart. My mind has, has decided I'm not going to come hell or high water, offer this body in the morning to the Lord to do that. And so... Three days a week, I don't. Three days a week, I make other choices. Three days a week, I actually make some bad choices uh, by eating a pastry and having a big, frothy, sugary latte. So, so, but that's the point, is that he is saying, put the two together, right? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. But before you do that, you have to decide that you're not going to be conformed to the pattern of this world, and the pattern of this world is thinking wrongly. They think wrongly about almost everything. The pattern of this world is sinful. It's what can I get out of this? What's in this for me? The pattern of this world is selfishness. It's malice. It's not humility. It's hubris and arrogance. The pattern of this world teaches me a different pattern than the pattern of God. So I've got to decide in my heart and in my mind that I'm going to make these choices before those intersections come in my schedule. And so every act of the body, conforming it to the pattern of godliness, will cost me some time. Every single thing in life has a price tag. Everything. Anything I want. If you want to buy a boat, boat has a price tag. And if you don't have the money in the bank, you've got to start saving up now. If you want to buy a house, houses cost money. You're going to have to save up now. Anything you want has a cost. It, has a, it comes with a price tag. And when you and I say, man, I choose the world, and I choose to think like the world, I choose to sort of imbibe the darkness in the world, then you and I, that's costing us something in godliness. That is costing us. But, when, but also making the choice to devote ourselves like living sacrifices as a holy temple, a holy priesthood to God and saying, I'm going to offer my life as a living sacrifice that will also cost us some things in the world. We renew our minds the way, uh, when we renew our minds, we discern the wise path. So the outcome here, what he says is this. 
When you do this, when you devote and consecrate and give your body like a living sacrifice, and then when you give God your mind and you just make the decision mentally in your heart, in your spirit, you decide, I'm going to be converted. I'm going to be devoted to God. What happens is you and I begin to, we are able to discern the will of God, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. God's will is always good, pleasing, and perfect, all three at the same time. And so you and I can discern God's direction. We can discern the path of righteousness. We can discern his leading and his guiding us. We can do that when we commit ourselves to being devoted to to, uh, Christian growth. So we choose to grow up in the faith and to build ourselves up in the word. We choose, and this choice necessarily commits us to saying no to worldly vice, to putting on godly virtue, as God's royal priesthood, his people, his building, which is being growing up and being built up in the holy faith. And we are built up in the word and we are built up for the world because we're not going to be any worldly good unless we are built up in the word. Can I pray for you? God, we just thank you for your word this morning. And God, we don't want to just get up and just sort of check the boxes of all the worldly vices we need to rid ourselves of. God, we want to put on the character of Christ. We want to put on the Holy Spirit. God, we want to clothe ourselves with the righteousness of God that is in your word. And so, Lord, would you help us to make that commitment today? Would you help us to make the commitment? And if you're sitting there and you're watching by TV or your cell phone or your iPad, would you just make the commitment right now to grow? God, I'm going to grow up in the faith. God, I am going to put off worldly vice. I am going to put on godly virtue. And right now I choose to grow up in the holy faith. And God, would you build me up? God, as I do that, would you just by the Holy Spirit supernaturally, would you build up this body and build up each and every one of us, Lord, in this body to be this holy temple, this royal priesthood, the people who stand between God and the world and bring them together in intercession. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.